We are going to primarily be in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19 today. Um, Most of our time will be spent actually in chapter 19 and in Psalm 59. If you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel. And before I get started, just a a quick announcement, and this will be further expressed in um, a much more powerful way from Mark and Brandy, but an announcement to make, and we have all known uh, their uh, youngest son, Michael, really since he was a newborn child, and now that he is two and a half, three, two and a half, almost three, right? He is now officially a McKinnon, Um, and this, most of us may, may even know that. But he is now sealed into their family by the grace of God, and uh, this all happened um, uh, a week and a half ago. And so such exciting news and such a testimony of our God who is a redeemer. And so we will get to hear more about that in the coming weeks from Mark and Brandy. Today we're going to be looking at um, kind of life after David and Goliath. Uh, last week we looked at the story of David and Goliath, probably the most well-known story in all of the Bible. One of the things that I made mention was if you grew up in the church, surely you knew the story of David and Goliath. And if you did not grow up in the church, you also um, most likely knew the story of David and Goliath. But what may not be as familiar is what happens, uh, what happened to David after that battle. And so that's what we are going to begin looking at as we look uh, through the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, from now until the end of 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at the life of David before he actually becomes king uh, as he sits on the throne as king. And so as we look in 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 19 today, we will begin to look at the relationship between Saul and David. Let me pray for us now. Father, we ask, Lord, to continue to give us a spirit of worship and praise by the power of your Holy Spirit coming down upon us. Lord, we ask for your grace. Lord, we ask it ask that you would make your word alive to us that it would dwell in our hearts, that it would be rich that we would see what we are offered through your word, the very voice of God. Father, I pray against, um, Lord, distractions and things that try to consume us, attacks of the enemy that hope to take our mind from the great message of the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would fill us now with your truth. All this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. As we look at 1 Samuel 18, what we see is just after the battle between David and Goliath and the people recognize that David is a great warrior and even recognize that he is, uh, has a special relationship with the Lord and that the Lord loves him and longs to, be, longs to use him for his kingdom purposes. Uh, we also see, and this is a... Uh, this is a, a famous part of Scripture in 1 Samuel 18 where people are 
um, praising and exalting David. And they're comparing him to Saul by saying that Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul actually hears this, and we see in 1 Samuel 18, verse 8, in response to hearing the people shouting for David, verse 8 says this about Saul, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And so what we see is that Saul sees now that David is being lifted up to such an extent that, that um, Saul sees him being able to take away the kingdom from him. And he's displeased with this, and we see that he eyed David from that point on. If you look at verses 28 and 29 of that chapter, chapter 18, it says this, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So David goes from this hero, loved in the sight of Saul, uh, even Saul making him head over men of war, uh, a title of honor uh, given, to, given to David, and now Saul despises him. Uh, he's concerned with him, and, he, uh, and, and the thought of killing David even consumes Saul's mind. And so let's continue with this as I read 1 Samuel chapter 19. I'll start in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. 
And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he said, Where are Saul and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes. And he, pro- he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Here's what I hope we will see. and This is a long passage, but I hope that we will see this, that our worship to the Lord must primarily focus on what he has done and what he will do. And here's why that's so necessary. Because circumstantial worship is, is an unsustainable thing. It's completely unsustainable. And yet most of our worship, include myself, most of our worship is circumstantial. Most, most of our worship to God is in response to something that is happening to us. Now, what's great about this passage is that the Holy Spirit has given us such a gift by connecting this story with a psalm. And in Psalm 59, we see uh, David speaking of this very thing. And so not only do we have this historical account in 1 Samuel 19, but we also have the very journal of David, the very heart of David talking about this very thing in Psalm 59. And so we'll look at Psalm 59 as we look at this and see that his personal experience of what's taking place right here that is given to us by the will of God in Psalm 59. And Psalm 59 tells us first about the cry of the Christian. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the cry of the Christian and then we're going to look at the provision of God. And so as we consider uh, David's response to all that's going on here, I'll be the first to recognize that most of us will not, will never experience, have not experienced, and will never experience what David faced here in 1 Samuel 19. Uh, now you may think that your father-in-law doesn't like you. However, uh, you probably do not have to peek out of the blinds at night to see who he has sent to your house uh, to try to get you when you come outside to take your life. Um, you will not have to worry about hitmen tracking you down 
and coming after you to report to him where you may be so that he may come after your life. But this is what David is facing here. And this is what's going through his heart and his mind as he prays in response to this. And in Psalm 59, 1 through 3, this is what we read. And this is the words of David to God. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. This is what he's saying in the first three verses. And so as I said, I know that we don't experience, we're not, nor will we ever experience what David is going through right here. People are not surrounding our homes. We do not feel in constant danger that somebody is after our life. Um, we don't feel... We don't feel like we're in imminent danger like many people around the world that claim Christianity today. And still, even so, we should recognize this cry of David's is a consistent cry for the follower of Christ. And here's here's what I mean. David is crying out to, to God, begging for deliverance. He is seeing that his calling... As he is following the Lord here, as he is following God's calling for his life, he sees that he's being pushed against, and he's crying out for deliverance. A few weeks ago, I was taking a jog, and I turned down a particular road, and on each side of the road was a large pasture that went for uh, as far as my eye could see. And as as I began to jog down this road, all of a sudden I realized that this I seem to run at ease, and I seem to um, have a, a greater ability to go further. And so I, I was out to run a particular distance, and so I knew exactly when I needed to turn around, but when I got to that point, I felt like I could just keep running and running, and so I did. I kept running, and I didn't turn around when I was supposed to. And at, at one point, I even felt like I could continue to go, But I knew that I had to get home soon, and so I ended up turning around. And as soon as I turned around, I realized what was going on. Because as soon as I turned around, I felt like the wind was just pressing up against me. And so what I I realized was that as I was running, the wind was completely at my back, more than I've ever felt it before. And I thought I was just, uh, had all of a sudden gotten over a hump in my running game, and I was able uh, to run better and faster and longer than I ever had. But what happened was wind was at my back, and when I turned around, it was in my face. So much so that I got to a place far from home where I had to stop, rest, and then walk home. And I have, my phone has a little GPS thing, and it got to the point where Elena even called my phone to check on me because I had been gone for so long. And I tell you that story to say the Christian life will be a life where the wind is in your face, almost pressing against you, holding you back at times. And this cry of David, though he is in a different situation than we will ever be in, uh, then we, he is facing things that we would never have to face. His cry is one that should be familiar to us and should be familiar to every believer. That it's a cry of saying, I have followed the Lord 
He has called me in this very direction, and yet this very direction that I'm going in, I'm being pushed back. And it's a struggle. And I almost feel that I can't even make it. And so I want to, as we look at this subject of the cry of the Christian, I want to break this down for a moment just to mention that there are, there are a lot of things that can bring on despair and trouble and pain and difficulty that we do. Things like unwise choices, dishonesty, taking advantage of others, hurting others, immorality. And these are things that will definitely lead to destruction and, re- and despair in your life. And whether you're a Christian or whether you're a non-Christian, a path that involves those things that I've mentioned, they will lead to a broken life. If I go out and if I become a thief, if I go out and I become a thief today, then things will not turn out well. Just the natural law of immorality and sin will bring about destruction and despair. And I may cry out to God because of that, but that is not what I'm talking about, nor is that what David is experiencing at this moment. David is crying out to God, and he's saying this in Psalm 59. He's saying, Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or no sin of mine, O Lord. Now, David's not saying that he's not a sinner. But he is saying that no particular sin has placed him in this position that he's in. Nothing that he has done sinfully has led him to this place of despair. He is there simply because he has followed God's call in his life. And he has come to this place of crying out to God simply because he was following the Lord. He was called to a purpose here, and then he was doing it. And he was following where he knew the Lord was leading him. So this, I want to mention a few things about this. The first one is, we get ourselves into a lot of messes. We, we make decisions that lead down terrible paths. We often believe that we can walk down a path that leads in a particular direction for everybody else. And yet we think it will take us somewhere different. We do not realize the consequences of unwise decisions. Now David did this a number of times. We're familiar with a lot of, his, a lot of the stories that are in the Bible that speak of his sin that led to a lot of the strife, destruction, pain, and suffering in the Lord's discipline. We see that in David's life. And we need to recognize that we get ourselves into a lot of these messes. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.15, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer. And he's talking about suffering as Christians here and suffering for doing good. And this is what he says. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter is saying, Don't confuse your suffering as a Christ follower with suffering that you have brought upon yourself. And as we approach this subject, that's necessary to talk through, to not confuse the two. Because when we have brought about pain or suffering or despair upon us because of unwise decisions, this is a call for repentance. It's a call to turn. And it's an opportunity, as well as an opportunity, to look to God to redeem those things. That He can and does redeem even the messes that we have brought upon ourselves to the point that God will even use them to offer uh, His redemption for us, 
and then also to offer glory to His name. But He certainly wants to show us our sin for the purposes of repentance. And so as we see that David is crying out here to God, he is not crying out to God to deliver him from something that he has gotten himself into. He is crying out to God because he is being harassed and attacked simply because he has followed the Lord, simply because he has answered God's call. And I want to address this because it is not helpful, nor is it honest, nor is it a good witness to try and contribute our suffering or our difficult place in life to our faithfulness to God when we have brought that mess upon ourselves, And you see that often with cult leaders. You see it with Pharisees and even religious politicians do this to the point that it can often look disgusting. And they do this often and we shouldn't ever find ourselves in that camp. And we should recognize that the discipline of the Lord is to call us to repentance and to show us His desire for us to turn to follow Him. So that's a necessary thing to talk about. But also, as we follow Christ, understand that the wind should be in our face, that it should be a struggle as we follow Him, that as He walked on this earth, it was a great struggle. And as we see David here, this story, and then his response in crying out to God, the wind was in his face. You'll experience a lot that slows you down, even knocks you down. And very often, this is simply a result of a ruthless pursuit of the enemy that God has allowed. He has allowed him to come into your life as, he, as the enemy longs to sift God's people as wheat. And he'll come after you. And he'll come after you and after you again and again. And you may, feel, you may feel like something is surrounding you that's just not right. You may feel like there's no way out. Common, common understanding of this is we look at the life of Job. And if you remember, Job's friends were certain that he had committed some kind of grave sin that had led him to the place he was in, that had caused him to lose all that he had. But the Bible makes it very clear that that's not the case. He was being sifted by Satan, but it was not because of unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear that it was because of his righteousness that he went through all that he went through. And so as we see this cry from David, the cry of the believer, the cry of God's follower, may we see that God has placed us in a position that the wind is against our face as we walk through this world, as we follow our Lord. So here's how we see David respond to this situation he's in. In Psalm 59, verses 14 through 16. Psalm 59, 14 through 16. David says, each evening they come back. His people are surrounding his home. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and they growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing, here's his response, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. So David is worshiping, but it's not a circumstantial worship. He knows who God is based on what he has done and what he will do, based on his promises. 
based on his covenant. And consider this. He is surrounded at night. This is what the psalm's telling us. He's surrounded at night, but he says, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. And David's not saying, Lord, if you get me through this, then I'll worship you tomorrow morning. What David is saying is, I am worshiping you now because I know that your steadfast love will be there in the morning. Your steadfast love will be there for me in the morning, even though I'm surrounded and threatened at night. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, some of you may be able to relate to what Paul's saying because some of you may have been at a, at a high place in life, and then, and then the next year you may have been in a low place. And Paul has experienced both. He's experienced having plenty, and then he's experienced when he has gone hungry. But what Paul is saying here, he is saying that whether I have enough or more than enough, and then whether I'm going hungry and barely hanging on, Paul is saying, I remain steady. And this is really, uh, this is really unheard of. Because he's saying, if I have more than enough, I don't go into a worship arena and then just give my praise to God like never before. And then when I have nothing, I don't complain. He's saying, the whole time, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in great need, I I remain steady in my worship. His spirit is always steady in worship. He's always ready, whether he lacks or whether he has more than enough, he's always ready to worship the Lord. And this is where David is. David is able to sing to God even when he's being pursued by the enemies. Now this leads us to this, the provision of our God. As we look to this, as we and as we experience and know and understand the cry of the Christian, may we look to the provision of our God. And there's two main ways in this chapter that God provides for David during this time, as we've read about this. He uses people, and then he uses his spirit. And we see that God uses Jonathan, the son of Saul, and then he uses Michael, his wife, who is the daughter of Saul, to defend him and to help him. Now, here's what we see about both Jonathan and Michael. Their hearts were united to David by the heart of the Lord. And this is is to show David, and this should transcend to be able to show us that God will unite you to people that you never would have expected to be united with. This should have never worked in David's life for Jonathan to be an advocate. This should have never been a way that God would spare David or warn David or prepare David through the son and daughter of his enemy, Saul. And this is what, but God has united their hearts to him. And this is what we should look to as we have the cry of the Christian. The church should unite you to God's provision. God will use people 
to unite you to how he will care for you. And so, that, and so I would ask, is that what you are a part of here with us? Are you, a, are you united here to God's provision? Do you equate these people to God's provision in your life? Can you count on each other? Can you look to one another? Are you God's provision for others? Do you look to see how He wants to provide for others through you? Have you been helped by God's people? Have you been encouraged? Have you been blessed? And have you done that for others? Because this is God's provision for you. This is how He chooses to work. And it will often be from people that you would have never expected to be able to be helped by. God does that. He unites people from all, all realms of life to help others. Now you, there's a very good chance that you have been brought up, as I have been brought up, to be an individual. To count on, if you want something done right, do it yourself. If you want to make a way, you do it yourself. But the, the Christian life really tells us that it, that can, it cannot function that way. As we exalt individualism and individual responsibility, the Christian, and there's, there's, there's times for that, and there's times to take responsibility, but the Christian life cannot function like that. You cannot get to heaven on your own. And we know that in the context of the gospel and being saved from Christ, but also the Lord provides people provides people on this journey for you. And He uses them to provide for you. And He uses you to provide for them. We also see God's Spirit at work in an amazing way in providing help for David. And it almost sounds odd for us to read this at the end of chapter 19 where we see Saul sending messengers and they go and they begin to prophesy and then he does it three times. They continue to do it and then he does it as well and the same thing happens. And most likely what this text is telling us is that these people who are looking to surround David and who are looking to report back to Saul where David is, they are coming to him and then they begin to praise the Lord. And most likely they begin to confess sin. And then they begin to rebuke one another to show that they, to, to remind one another that they are going against the plan of God. They're prophesying. This happens again and again by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes down upon these messengers. And then we also see that after Saul had tried this with three different groups, he goes himself, he takes this matter into his own hands. And what does the text tell us? It tells us that when he gets there, he begins to prophesy in a most humbling fashion where he ends up laying naked this king this powerful king of the people gets humbled by the true king. Now this was to show David that God's spirit will and never fail to intervene for him. That God's spirit will not forsake his people. And regardless of how much the enemy or the enemies of God want to interrupt God's plan for our life, God will make a way. 
God will do this. God will intervene Himself coming down to make this happen. Now look at this question. The last thing that's said in 1 Samuel 19. This is in verse 24. Thus it is said, or some versions may say, Thus the proverb says, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now this question is to show us that it would not make sense for Saul, as you're reading this, and as the author is writing this, writing to the people of God, he's saying it wouldn't make sense for Saul to come there and prophesy when he is looking to destroy the anointed one of God. Is Saul also among the prophets? Can Saul also speak the word of the Lord? And this question is to show us that God in His omniscience and in His omnipotence will use His enemies to bring Himself glory and to lift up His people. Is Saul also among the prophets? Is is Saul doing the work of the Lord? In fact, he is. In fact, Saul is being humbled before God and making God's name great as he's pursuing to kill the one that God has anointed. This is how God works. Do you understand the frustration of the enemy when we claim Christ? Do you understand the frustration of the enemy when he goes after God's anointed? Do you see how this will point to the day that will come when we will see, when we will be able to look back and see that all that was against us, God was using it for us, that He was doing a great work to usher in His plan, His provision for us. Now I want to close with this because in the midst of this despair, Psalm 59 tells us what a gift from the Spirit of God to give us Psalm 59 to tell us about this passage. Because in the midst of this despair, David worshiped the Lord. And please, this this may be the most important part. Not because he was a great worshiper. Not because he had figured out the secrets to worship. But because he knew that his God was a Redeemer God. He worshipped the Lord in the midst of this because he knew that God was a Redeemer God. Now whether you are high or low right now, whether you have an abundance or whether you have nothing, don't let that govern your worship. The worship of the world today is primarily circumstantial. Don't let that govern your worship. Let your worship be governed by this, that our God is a Redeemer God. So how do we do that? We look to what He has done. We look to what He did 2,000 years ago on the cross when He sent His Son Jesus to die for us and to deliver us. When we understand the promises of God that were fulfilled on the cross, that He came to rescue us. This is what He has done. And then this is what He has promised us, that He will come for us again, that He will descend upon us to redeem all that is wrong, and then we are promised this, that He will fill the land with righteousness 
at His return. So that is what He will do. May that govern our worship. Whether we have an abundance or whether we're lacking, may we realize that this God is our God and He is a Redeemer God, ever faithful, ever true. Father, we... Lord, we ask for your spirit to work in us in such a way that that we are not governed by our circumstances. Father, I pray that, Lord, as we approach you, even in song now, Pray that it would not that our that our singing would not depend on what's going on in our life or how we feel, but instead we would be able to look to you as our redeemer, as a God who loves his covenant people and is faithful to his covenant promises, that we can be reminded of what was done and then what is coming. that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and forever will be. May we count on your eternal promises. And then, may we sing to you. I pray this in Christ's name.